Hello everyone, I'm Peter McMillan at NT Shelter. We're coming to you from Larrakia country in Darwin, and I pay my respects to Larrakia elders, uh, past, present and emerging, and to all other First Nations people who might be listening in. This is episode two of Sharing the Couch. It's a new initiative at NT Shelter where we have a conversation with uh, thought leaders in the housing and the homelessness system, and those that are trying to make a difference right at the pointy end to get better outcomes for those who are vulnerable in the housing market. You might be wondering where the name Sharing the Couch came from. It's really a tribute to the young people who each year race uh, the couches in the Youth Homelessness Matters Day up here in the Northern Territory that's run by Anglicare NT. It's a tribute to, to them, to their enthusiasm and passion um, and, and enjoyment of getting together and celebrating that, but also a reminder of the need for us to tackle homelessness for young people. We've got a number of people lined up to talk over the coming months, which we're very excited about. Our aim is to get to know a little bit more about the people that are at the forefront of the sector, the organisations they work for or, or have worked for, and um, the great work they've, they've done or are currently doing. So make sure you don't miss out by um, following our YouTube channel, just you can Google uh, NT Shelter in YouTube into your search engine and subscribe to uh, the page so you don't miss out on any um, up and coming broadcasts. Our guest today is in the view of many of us who work in the housing and homes sector, Australia's most enduring, uh, most influential, well-known and, and respected advocates for social and affordable housing. Adrian Pazarski has a 40 year history in the community sector, including roles within housing, homelessness, welfare and youth peak bodies in Tasmania, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland and nationally. Adrian was the executive officer of Queensland Shelter between 2002 and 2013. He was the chairperson of National Shelter between 2004 and 2013. And he was the executive officer of National Shelter until retiring in March earlier this year. He served on the board of ACOS between 2007 and 2013 and was vice president for five years. Adrian was a member of the Affordable Housing Summit Group, which was instrumental to the development of the National Affordable Housing Agreement and the National Rental Affordability Scheme, or NRAS. He served on numerous advisory bodies for housing, homelessness and youth affairs. He was also instrumental in establishing the National Affordable Housing Alliance, a national collaboration that involves leading industry peaks, including the Housing Industry Association, the Property Council of Australia, the Community Housing Industry Association, Industry Super Australia, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Australian Council of Social Service, Master Builders Australia, Homelessness Australia, and National Shelter. Quite a list of leading organisations with an interest in that housing space. Adrian, welcome so much to the program. Um, it's a pleasure having you joining us. And I want to come back uh, a little later to, the, I guess, that National Affordable Housing Alliance and, and uh, some of the participants and, and the contributions that they can make in this space. But first of all, perhaps you can just share a couple of things about, uh, I guess, how you got involved with issues around social justice and, and youth issues and housing homelessness. Such a long time, such a long legacy, really, in, uh, in uh, all those spaces. How did it all begin? Long time ago. Um, just before I get into that, I'll just acknowledge that I'm on Cubby Cubby country on the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and um, pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging 
and particularly in terms of um, all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people or, or other islanders um, who suffer the worst housing conditions often in Australia. I think it's very important to do that. So where did it all start? Um, it started really in Tasmania. Um, I was living down there. I was actually unemployed at the time. I'd dropped out of uni again and travelled to Tasmania with um, my girlfriend who uh, promptly left me. Um, and I was living in a share squat, actually, um, with a bunch of other people and got involved with the Unemployed Workers Union in Tasmania, uh, which I became secretary of. I've always been attracted to executive positions. Mm. Um, and uh, at the time, there was a job coming up at a, at a, a young uh, a youth refuge in, in Hobart, Shoebridge Street Youth Refuge, doesn't exist anymore. Um, but it was a, um, a youth refuge down there, a generalist youth refuge. Um, and I was um, fortunate enough to get that job. Um, within about three months, we changed a lot of the personnel down there and um, and then decided to close the place because we were having lots of issues. It was a mixed refuge. We were only working part-time. We were doing overnights for nothing. Um, and it just wasn't a sustainable service the way it was running. There was already a, a young women's refuge in Hobart, um, Annie Kenny, which is still there. And um, we thought that the best thing to do with Shoebridge Street was to reopen it as a young men's refuge. A lot of the problems that we had were caused by um, the mixture and a lack of supervision. Um, so we did that and that worked really well. Um, the, it turned into a good service, but um, pretty quickly um, I identified that I was probably better at uh, wrangling governments and advocating for young people rather than working with them directly. Um, and so I quickly moved into, into that space um, and became the first Tasmanian delegate to the National Coalition, National Youth Coalition for Housing, NICH, as it was then, um, which was actually formed at a national shelter meeting in, in around 1983, um, or the, the, the beginnings of it were. And over two years, um, I was in that role as a delegate in Tasmania. And um, it was about two and a half years down there, and, and then I'm and then I moved. So I had to start all over again in Melbourne. Um, did you uh, enjoy the work, Adrian? I mean, how did what were your first impressions in those early days of working in that space? Oh, it's very hard work. When we were only working part time, um, you know, we'd come on shift at about um, four o'clock in the afternoon. There wouldn't have been anybody there since ten o'clock in the morning. And we'd work, um, you know, roughly, we'd, we'd do about a four hour paid shift and then we'd stay overnight um, in the office uh, just to make sure of it and do a handover in the morning to someone who would work until kind of midday. That was about all we could uh, manage. So it was very hard working on those circumstances. We weren't able to provide the level of support that a lot of young men in particular needed. Mm -hmm. um, 
I can't say I really enjoyed that work. I found it distressing and difficult and, and often not very productive. And, and it kind of convinced me way back then that um, a housing first approach is actually a much better thing that uh, crisis services, um, whilst essential, aren't the best solution that we can be providing to people. Sure. And how did you, I guess, find your voice for advocacy? Was that something you felt you had a gift for and something you wanted to do? Or was it something that, as you said, circumstances kind of led to you um, becoming an advocate? I was always pretty outspoken. And I, I actually enjoyed going to meetings, unlike most people in the world who don't. Um, I quite enjoyed the, the interaction of meetings and I formed good relationships with officials and, and um, uh, politicians and pretty quickly other people identified me as being good at that and asked me to do that kind of stuff and, and put me forward to do that kind of work. Um, I also found that I enjoyed doing that a lot more than I did the face-to-face uh, -face work and I was better at it than I was mm -hmm. at face-to-face -face work. Um, I was much more effective. We, we always had, you know, we improved our funding at Shoebridge Street. We improved funding for the sector mm. when I was advocating it. We successfully established niche and, and, and as part of that started lobbying nationally. Um, uh, so it seemed to me that that was a good role for me and I pretty much did it for 40 years after that. It's, it's quite interesting when you talked about forming good relationships. Uh, because often, you know, I guess in advocacy, there can be some tension or some conflict. But I guess, if I understand you correctly, you're saying having good relationships is also uh, extremely important for achieving change. Probably about 80% of the role, I think, um, yeah. is creating and maintaining good relationships. I mean, sometimes you have to swallow um, a lot of stuff that you would rather not. You have to um, accept things that you would prefer not to in, mm -hmm. in lots of, of ways to maintain those relationships. But I think um, it's really important to have good relationships with officials and particularly with politicians. I mean, you get very little out of politicians that don't have any respect or, or um, or, or that you don't have credibility with them. And I think, you know, one observation I'd make is that too often our sector is good at complaining, good at making the point about what's wrong, um, but not so good at working out what's right and what, what policy solutions should be done. My mother always told me um, from when I was a young boy, if you, if you don't have a better idea, don't criticize essentially. Mm. So um, I've always lived by that of, of actually trying to figure out better ways of, of doing things and, and promoting those staying on the positive side rather than just pointing out what the problems are. It sounds like it's very good to see the problems. It's, it's not mm. difficult to see the problems. Sounds like very sound advice. And, um, you know, uh, I guess something that a lot of us can reflect on in terms of, uh, I guess, sometimes government saying you know well look what are the solutions here you know we know the problems what are what do you what can we do about it 
And I think that's that's really insightful. Adrian, talking about officials and politicians um, in Canberra and elsewhere, I mean, you've been around in, in this space now for 40 years. Uh, I guess that goes back to the time when we had the old Parliament House as well. And um, no doubt you met many interesting people and, and many impressive people over that time in both state and uh, federal politics. But I'm just curious, to any standout in particular during that time as being impressive and uh, whether that be because of their courage or their thoughts or their influence? Um, I think there's a few. Um, Brian Howe in the early days was a real standout and taught, taught me very um, important lessons. Uh, my first lobbying expedition was in 1983 with um, a bunch of people, including Rob Hudson, to, to see Brian Howe about um, youth incomes and trying to get an improved deal on youth incomes. And we had a very good case and, and we were annoyed that our, our national peak at the time uh, wasn't making that case. So we've, we actually took it ourselves as a Victorian peak body. And we talked to Brian Howe and he listened, looked at our material, liked what he saw and then looked at us and said, where the, I won't say exactly what he said, he said, <laughs> but something like, where the hell were you two weeks ago when I lost this argument in Canberra? Um, if I'd had this information, I would have won it. And that was a very important lesson. You don't wait. You have to get stuff in front of people. You have to stay on the core issues and you have to keep pushing. And, and you have to affect not just your own minister, um, that you might be dealing with, but as many people in the cabinet as you can. So it's a real process of educating politicians. People assume politicians somehow know things and they're just people. They don't necessarily know things. They're often, and often what they do know is what they've been briefed by officials and that isn't always correct or has the... Has, has the um, the edge to it that we might put on it from the service system that's dealing with the, the kind of, you know, crunchy end of, of, of the situation. So those lessons are really important. So Brian Howe, I think, was really important. And that whole Better Cities program that he eventually then developed, I think, was a really um, far-sighted way of looking at housing. It's, you know, also the coincides with the period when we had the highest level of, of social housing in Australia. And that was under the Hawke-Keating governments. Um, Paul Keating, I had a bit to do with around youth incomes and, and um, education and training portfolios when he was PM. He was fantastic. Um, you know, we had a, he held a summit in Canberra around youth employment and incomes and he was supposed to send, spend 15 minutes with us as a national peak and do a bit of photo opportunities and whatnot. Stayed for an hour and a half and listened to wow. absolutely everybody in the room. It's probably- Very impressive. 12 or 14 people that spoke and he stayed, took copious notes in his own hand, borrowed a pen and pad, wrote down everything. Um, so he was really impressive. And then I think beyond that, um, you know, the Rudd government, and in particular, Tanya Plibersek. Um, she, I think, really changed or started to change things. Unfortunately, she wasn't minister for long enough and that government wasn't viable for long enough 
to cement those changes. And, and so we still find ourselves really in a situation now where we haven't ever completed the reform packages of either the, the Port Pleading governments or the, or the Rudd Gillard governments. Um, and we then go backwards um, when we don't have those positive agendas that those two governments in particular put forward. It's quite interesting because the social housing initiatives that I think it was the Rudd government um, introduced was audited and showed that uh, building social and affordable housing at scale uh, does return positive economic benefits despite the costs obviously of building. So uh, the proof is there, isn't it? But we just, I guess, need, like you say, to continue those um, those programs or those kind of initiatives that we know work um, into the future. Yeah. And the other person that I think needs to be mentioned is Hugh Stretton, who used to run the, the um, South Australian Housing Trust. And Hugh always made the point that you had to do um, social housing at sufficient scale to impact the market. And if you look at South Australia through all of those years of uh, those kind of golden years of the housing trust, they created a lot of worker housing, a lot of low income housing, and they had 11% um, of all housing in South Australia was social housing. They're now in a process of reducing that. But South Australia was able to really build a manufacturing revolution on the back of that housing. And that's what it was built for. And it really did affect, and it still continues to affect affordability in South Australia. Um, affordability since they've been selling off housing in South Australia has really deteriorated. So I think one of the lessons overall is that if you do build sufficient social and affordable housing at scale, then it takes pressure off the whole market and it makes the whole market more affordable because you've taken that critical um, end of the, of, the, of the market. You've provided people with choice at that end of the market and therefore that takes pressure off the rest of the housing market. Sure. No, that's absolutely right. Um, and I guess just going back to your thoughts on the people that work in our sector, there's uh, there's many out there and um, and they they work tirelessly. Uh, they believe in what they do. The uh, the pay isn't as high as some other professions, but they do it because they want to make a difference. It can be a very hard slog. Have you got any advice to people who think, look, is anything ever going to change? Um, things do change. They they sometimes change quite quickly. Um, you have long periods of bashing your head against a brick wall, but eventually the wall breaks and you can make real progress. I mean, when I think of, um, I mean, I won't, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to be political about this, but unfortunately the reality is that conservative governments in Australia don't really believe in or support social housing. They think everything can be done by the market. And when we get those governments and they're in for a long period of time, like the Howard government was, or even the you know, Abbott Turnbull um, Morrison government, they do a lot of damage in that time. They really undermine the system. But if I think back to um, before the, the Rudd government, we'd, through the Affordable Housing Summit Group, led by Julian Disney, who is also someone I'd mention as a real... Um, you know, someone that I always admired, Julian, I think 
very even, very um, persuasive, very powerful, very clever, um, and able to bring people together in a way. So, you know, he was the chair of the Affordable Housing Summit Group. Um, I was part of that, and we developed, I think, a really positive agenda, pitching it at the Howard government, but really not getting very far. Uh, with the Howard government. Um, Howard himself was quite interested in the agenda, but Costello was a blocker. Um, his view was that housing's a market problem and, and the market will sort it out. You know, it's such a distorted market that um, it can't. And, but it meant that when the Rudd government did get in, they could look to something that had a really positive agenda that they could get on with. And they adopted probably 70% of the agenda that the Affordable Housing Summit Group was promoting. And out of that, we got the National Rental Affordability Scheme. Then when the global financial crisis um, hit, um, they were very supportive and, and we were advocating also for, for housing to be a major part of the stimulus package and they supported that and did that. So it meant that um, in, in a really couple of years, we got 20,000 new social housing properties on the ground and the beginning of a program which was supposed to provide 50,000 affordable housing places over 10 years, um, eventually the government got kicked out and, and those programs were, were, were cut. But we still see the benefit of the social housing initiative um, of that nation building program that Rudd did in response to the GFC. Um, when you compare that to the Morrison government's response to COVID and the economic, um, you know, problems that we had over the last few years, all of the money went into the private sector. Nothing went into public sector or community sector housing, and we'll get no legacy out of that. In fact, the legacy has been a hypercharged housing market. Uh, which has become far too expensive for people to even contemplate buying into and has meant that rents have, have gone skyrocketing through the roof because supply has dried up. Because the house prices went up so much, lots of investors decided to sell. So you lose rental stock through that period. Um, there's this myth that negative gearing and, and um, capital gains tax exemptions support the rental market well i think we've just shown how they don't you know and when you when you add on to it things like home builder which which help inflate house prices i mean there was lots of other reasons as well but that really has done a lot of damage to our housing markets and so we are now at a point where i think we can again have hope labor has a, a reasonable program it could be better and I'd be hopeful that the Greens and, and, and Teal Independents would push um, more strongly on the, on the housing front and we get a better result than um, what has even been proposed. Sure, it is, it is an interesting period of change, isn't it, or opportunity. You get that sense that with an incoming government, and you would have seen many changes in government over those years, there's always, always I guess, this sense of what's what's new, who's the minister going to be, what will their agenda be. So with uh, Minister Julie Collins uh, from Tasmania, seat of Franklin down there, if she was to ring you, Adrian, and say, look, um, what do you think I should be working on in my first 90 days to really understand and make a difference in this role? Have you got any advice for her? 
Um, follow the program that, that you've announced, essentially. Um, they've announced to the development of a national housing plan. I think they have to crack on with, with the, you know, the mechanisms around a national housing plan, establish the committees and, and, and inputs and consultation processes that they need to, to do that. Um, they've also announced a future fund to build social housing. I, if I was her, I'd be pushing to extend that um, and I'd be open to uh, persuasion from, from Greens and Teal Independents that want to, you know, that, that think housing affordability is a real problem and, and, and recognise the need for more social and affordable housing. I'd even be looking at NRAS and saying, is there a way to adjust, revamp um, uh, that program and even potentially um, ensure that some of the, the many thousands of dwellings that are going to be uh, lost in that program could be saved um, and, and re, you know, repurposed in terms of affordable housing. Um, and I'd be you know, getting on with forming the, the new national housing supply and, and I can't remember what the other title they've, they've got, supply and something in their uh, council, uh, get on with that process. And I'd also, you know, the one good thing that the Morrison government did do was establish the National Housing Finance Investment Corporation. That, that has really helped. It has also established a good architecture that can be built on. So I'd be looking at that and looking to how you could enhance that. Now, they've already flagged that with um, some, um, the, not just the saver scheme, but the, home ec the, the shared equity scheme that they have announced that they want to implement. I think that's a good idea. Um, but it probably means that NIFIC has to be looked at in, and in terms of broadening its brief and looking at what other um, mechanical or you know, machinery of government changes need to be made. I'd be shifting the whole lot into infrastructure. Um, they have discussed doing that. Um, it didn't appear in the first administrative changes announced by Albanese, but I'm hopeful that it will still move because housing does not belong as a welfare program. Housing is not welfare, it is infrastructure. It's essential infrastructure for people who really need it. And it's, it's about productivity and um, the ability of people to participate economically, culturally and socially. Um, it's been welfareized for far too long and that's been the fundamental reason why it's gone backwards. Right, and um, in terms, I guess it's also exciting now to have um, new, bodies like uh, you know infrastructure NT for example which dovetails in with infrastructure Australia gives us I guess uh, a better view of the ports of housing in terms of economic development and uh, and infrastructure um, one of the things I wanted to uh, get your thoughts on Adrian was uh, during the election campaign we heard a lot of focus on um, on um, new housing and um, I guess home ownership initiatives by both of the major parties. The Greens and uh, some of the minor parties in independence were talking about the needs of renters as well, but that didn't seem, to, at this stage at least, to have garnered a lot of attraction um, with either of the major parties. What do you think 
the incoming government needs to do to address this, given the fact that a lot of people aren't going to want to buy where they're living, especially in the Northern Territory where there's a lot of mobility through places like Darwin and Alice Springs, um, or they're at a certain stage of their life where you know they don't want to take the risk with a mortgage and the, I guess the prospect of rising interest rates and all that uncertainty at the moment. What do you think um, the current government is going to need to do to um, address that issue of renters who are doing it tough out there? The most immediate thing they could do, and I think they should look at doing it, is increasing Commonwealth rent assistance. That'll provide direct uh, relief to people. The danger with it is that it adds more demand side pressure into a market which doesn't have enough supply. So you've really got to look at how you lift supply in the rental market. Everybody assumes that the, that the rental market is somehow inelastic, that you know, it doesn't matter how many people you pile in there, that it can cope, and it doesn't. You know, we've seen that in particularly our regional centres recently, you know, as people have been leaving cities to go to regions um, due to COVID, uh, we've seen huge pressures in our regional rental markets on housing. So we really need to lift the supply of affordable rental housing, which is why I go back to re-looking at NRAS. You know, NRAS isn't dead yet. Um, it's been uh, curtailed, but it's still there. Um, incentive payments are still going out. There's no reason why it can't be re-looked at and, and continued um, with a, you know, adjustment or, or whatever you want to do with it. I mean, there's a few things that need to be fixed about NRAS, but fundamentally, it's a good program. But the real major problem has been the lack of social housing. We really need to build far more social housing and build it as quickly as we can. And I think the best way to do that is through the community sector, using institutional investment. So providing the incentive that government can provide to attract the scale of institutional investment that can build quickly and at scale would really make the biggest difference, I think, um, in the short and long term. The short term is really tricky because there's really nothing you can do. There's nothing quick about housing fixes. Um, it takes a long time. So supporting people financially in the meantime so that they can at least compete better in the lower end of the rental market um, is one thing. But until, I mean, I live at Noosa. Now, we've got lots of workers living in backpacker hostels at the moment because that's the only place they can afford to live. But that's just not a proper solution for people um, living eight to a room whilst they do a bunch of, of you know, gigs at different cafes and restaurants around the place. It's not a proper solution, but to rent permanently, even in share housing, they'd have to live too far away to be able to, to make it viable to live, you know, to do those jobs here. So, you know, it's an extreme example, Noosa, but it illustrates, I think, a problem in a lot of our regional markets, but also our urban markets, where the people who need to work in the lower end of, of the paid economy can't afford to live anywhere near where those jobs are. So that's the primary focus that we need to, to, to look at. Um, as, so as well as social housing, it's that affordable housing equation, which is around economic involvement. And if we fix those two things, 
which would take at least a decade, um, things would improve. But it's going to take a while, you know, and in the meantime, we're going to struggle. Sure. Yes. Um, and I want to come back also, I guess, to that National Affordable Housing Alliance that was established recently. And I read out the list at the start of organisations that are core members of that group. Um, can you maybe just touch on the role of uh, the role that organisations like the Property Council of Australia, uh, like the Housing Industry Association and, and others, um, bring to that table and have we got areas of commonality and interest where we can actually make a difference on social and affordable housing? We do. Those, those bodies represent the work, you know, different workforces and different, um, different interest groups in terms of Australia's housing sector. So master builders by and large is, um, you know, builders themselves, small business, uh, people. The Housing Industry Association is largely representative of the tradespeople across the whole sector. The Property Council represents really the bigger end of the building, you know, the, the more commercial side of, of construction, not just um, residential, but, but uh, retail as well, and commercial. Um, and then superannuation funds are involved in there because they want to invest in this stuff. And everybody has agreed that we need more social and affordable housing. You know, you've then got ACOS and Housing Industry Association, Homelessness Australia National Shelter in there as well, whose mission really is about more social and affordable housing. But the others want to build that stuff, but recognise that it's not commercially viable without some kind of subsidy. They also recognise that, as I was saying before, there are large funds out there that want to invest in this stuff that can be tapped, but the equation doesn't quite add up for them um, as a financial package. So governments no longer should be expected to do everything, like build 500,000 social housing properties over the next 20 years. That'd be nice, um, but I can't see them finding that, um, you know, the $150, $200 billion worth of, of capital that that's going to take. But we know that capital exists and wants to come into this space. We know those organisations want their members to be involved in building the stuff. Um, so there is really, uh, I mean, the whole point of the Alliance is, to, is, is a general recognition that there's a lack of social and affordable housing and proposing ideas to actually address that, not necessarily using government money, but using a government subsidy to attract private sector investment through an affordable housing booster, but it could be through a revamped NRAS, it could be through the Future Fund. There's a whole range of ways you can, you can do that. And it doesn't really matter in lots of ways which scheme or, or program you use. Um, we know that direct investment by government is probably the most efficient way of doing it. Um, and as interest rates rise, uh, governments with their already large debts become, will become a bit shy of, of the direct investment. But the subsidy provision, which is what they really need, there's a gap in every building every year uh, that is the difference between what people on low incomes can afford to pay in rent and what it costs to build and maintain those properties. So that's the equation that we're faced with. 
And the alliance is really important because it brings everybody together and says, we're not in dispute about this stuff. We're actually in agreement about this stuff. So it becomes a much more compelling argument, I think, for government, even though in recent times, um, governments have, have shown a propensity to ignore logical good arguments that everybody agrees to. Sure. No, that's that's absolutely true. And I guess the next area to I want to explore, Adrian, was the housing for First Nations people, for Aboriginal people in the Territory, uh, for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Queensland and, and over in WA, they've got a lot of issues. And also, I guess, in um, capital cities right across Australia and in, and in regional areas uh, as well. What's, uh, what's some of your thoughts around the particular uh, issues that you've seen First Nations uh, people are grappling with in terms of their housing? And what are the prospects, I guess, for getting that addressed? Yeah, it's... Um... It's a pernicious and long-standing problem. I mean, we did have a good program on remote Indigenous housing, Napari, and uh, its its um, subsequent program, the the remote housing program. Um, but really, that was only remote, and there are two sides to to. Or probably three aspects to this that really need to be thought about. The remote stuff, we probably need to do that whole program again because it only ever got halfway to where it needed to get. And that was the recommendation really of the review that was done into that, that program. Um, again, the previous government chose not to do that, but chose to continue to support the NT over a shorter period of time and a little bit of money in Queensland. And that was about it, maybe a little bit of money in WA as well. But really we need to, repeat that program. There were some valuable lessons learned through that program and it's a real pity that it wasn't repeated because it was starting to generate um, lots more housing in remote communities allowing uh, people to stay or even return to those communities and get the employment that's so often lacking because there were contractor roles to do maintenance and repairs and the building. Now, that's what we need to do is to rebuild the capacity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples themselves to build that housing. So I'll come back to that. But the other two components to it are the urban problem. 75% um, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders live in our cities, not in our remote areas. And then increasingly, there's a regional component to this as well. So we need to address all of those to, to get to the problem. And, and I still firmly believe that, believe that in the same way that, that Aboriginal community-controlled medical services are much better used, much better supported, and get better outcomes than uh, non-Indigenous services do, housing is exactly the same. We will get a much better outcome if we support community-controlled housing organisations to rebuild and, and, and to, to provide that housing and the support services that go along with it. Homelessness is a big problem, especially in the Northern Territory, as you know very well, um, and you get nowhere near the amount of money that's um, relative to the scale of the problem that you get. But it's housing that really needs to be built and then support added to it. 
So really, we've got to focus on the housing from, from this perspective, whilst, you know, developing new ways of doing the support. I don't think the old lens of, you know, crisis support being the, the pathway through which we do things is, is the right one. I think, you know, we provide the housing and we have to re-examine how the support is provided and that should probably come from Aboriginal people in that context as well, rather than, you know, external agencies. There's been too much, I think, reliance on, on uh, non-Indigenous agencies to, to do things that they don't properly understand. And, and probably can't properly understand. So that's really, I think, where we are. Now, we've got a new peak body that has come through um, in terms of Aboriginal community housing organisations, and that should be supported. There's a whole capacity piece that needs to be done to rebuild the capacity of um, Aboriginal community-controlled housing organisations. Um, and then there's a lot of money that has to flow through that. But until we've done the capacity piece so that they are properly registered and regulated organisations that has that, that then builds the confidence for the investor, um, then we use the same mechanisms as we would to build community housing everywhere. You know, it is scale investment provided through superannuation and other funds managed by community organisations, in these cases, Aboriginal community controlled organisations that build and manage the housing for their own people. The problem in the urban areas uh, more often um, is that the level of discrimination that still exists in our rental markets and, uh, and even in home ownership is still really high in Australia. There is a fundamental level of institutional racism that still exists in Australia that needs to be addressed. Now, unfortunately, because it isn't addressed, um, Aboriginal people are discriminated against and find it really difficult to access the sorts of services, housing and, and various other things that non-Indigenous people find um, they can navigate. So this is why Aboriginal community control is so fundamentally important because um, it needs to be in that context. And, and I would love to see, um, you know, a, a, a really large scale Aboriginal community controlled housing organisation in the NT that also provides housing to non-Indigenous people. That, you know, um, non-Indigenous people are using the same service that Indigenous people do, but it's controlled by Aboriginal community controlled organisations. I mean, why can't that? Happen. There's no reason that can't happen. If we do that development work, I think within a decade we could see that happening. Sounds like a pretty uh, good uh, outlook to me, Adrian. And um, for those uh, viewers who may not be aware, we do have a peak body now in Northern Territory, Aboriginal Housing NT, which has finally received some uh, funding from both the Commonwealth and Territory Government. And they have a very exciting but I guess very um, a large task ahead to ensure that Aboriginal people have a very strong voice as to how housing is delivered for their communities and to give them control back of, of housing. And, and Aboriginal organisations and people are best placed, of course, to speak about what they need for their communities and um, how, how that's best done. Uh, so I think that's a very exciting um, prospect, Adrian, if we can land that. 
Um, I guess just a final question. Uh, after 40 years, uh, you have um, you've seen a lot uh, in that time. You've seen a lot of programs come and go. And uh, as of today, I guess, you know, what, what are your, what are your, uh, are you enthusiastic, I guess, about the prospects? So they're green shoots there. Do you think that we, Australia can and will end homelessness? Uh, we can, and of, of course we can. It's entirely uh, within our uh, capability and, and power to do it. It's going to take, you know, a long-term political commitment, and it's really the political will that is always the 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 thing. And it isn't about addressing homelessness. It's building sufficient levels of social and affordable housing so that most homelessness just disappears. Um, you know, that's what should happen. We will always probably have a level of uh, people who require emergency and crisis accommodation, and we should maintain a level of that uh, for that purpose. But fundamentally, we need to build much more low-cost accommodation so that people aren't in the circumstances in the first place. Um, <coughs> and then they can access a whole range of services that they need, you know. We shouldn't work through this crisis lens. We have to work through the other lens of, of um, infrastructure and um, engagement and participation in, in economic and cultural and social activities. Adrian, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you've been uh, watching Adrian Pazarski, former National uh, Executive Officer of the National Shelter and a long-standing contributor to our housing and homelessness system and many other facets within the human service sector over, over many years. Adrian's been really, um, uh, really, uh, I guess, informative and uh, I really enjoyed listening to your story about what you've seen over such a, a long and distinguished career. And uh, we didn't talk so much today about the National Shelter Network, but I know from um, each of the shelters across Australia, we've certainly valued your uh, guidance and advice over the years. And I um, want to wish you all the best for your retirement up in Noosa. It sounds like a pretty good uh, setup to me. No, it's suit suiting me very nicely at the moment. Thanks, Peter. No worries. Good to talk, Adrian. Cheers. You've been listening to episode two of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.